Hi everyone, my name is Valerie. And I'm Marin. And welcome to The Modern Idealist, a podcast for career-driven professionals looking to make an impact. On this episode of Modern Idealist, Marin is out on a much-needed vacay. So for those of you who miss her, find her on LinkedIn or Instagram and send her a message. And in place, I've brought on an exciting guest from the sustainable investment field and why perhaps we should rethink sustainable finance and that rearranging the order from ESG to GSE would do a better job at achieving our sustainability goals. I'm thrilled to bring on Rodolphe Bouquet, who is a partner at Raphael Financial Advisory. He has 20 plus years of experience in the field of environmental finance and sustainable investment. He recently served as the VP Partnerships and Regulation of Clarity AI, a leading sustainability technology platform for sustainable portfolios, backed by Deutsche Börse, BlackRock, and SoftBank. He previously acted as the Global Head of Sustainable Investment at Quantigo. Rodolf combines a rare expertise at the crossroads of finance, investment, and sustainable development. After eight years as an equity derivative trader, he shifted his career to develop several innovative financing schemes, like carbon funds, private-public energy, private equity funds, subsidized credit facilities, for financial institutions and investment funds. In 2014, Rodolf co-founded Beyond Ratings to later integrate long-term sustainability drivers and their impacts on credit ratings. The company was acquired by the London Stock Exchange Group in May 2019. Now, among other boards, Rodolf regularly serves as an independent expert on the working group of CSRD Directive, PRI Fixed Income Advisory Committee, and Lux Flag Green Label Committee. Let's jump right in. Hi, Rodolf. Welcome to Modern Idealist. Hi, Valerie. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. After speaking to you the first time, just like learning about what you were doing, I thought, well, this is actually podcast material and we need to get some of your insights, knowledge in the in the industry, but also your lived experiences uh, on, on record. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pleasure to, to have the opportunity to share a little bit of that with uh, you and your listeners today. Can you give us a short intro? Yeah, sure. So I'm French. I'm 51 years old. I have uh, three kids. I'm living in Zurich, Switzerland, but I'm sharing my time between Zurich and Paris. I've been working for the last 30 years and I've been mostly doing three things. I started my career as an equity derivative trader on financial markets. I did that for eight years. Then I took a sabbatical year, went back to school, did a master in environmental engineering and spent the next 10 years working for a public institution in France, implementing environmental and sustainable development public policies. And after that 10 years of public sector, I felt the need to go back to the private sector. And that's when I founded in 2014 Beyond Ratings, a company dedicated to a responsible investment that I've co-developed for seven years before it got acquired by the London Stock Exchange Group, then spent two more years in responsible investment. And since the beginning of this year, I've joined an M&A advisory firm in Paris called the Raphael Financial Advisory, where I am heading the sustainability practice. 
Oh, that's just great to hear. I love that you've been in very different parts of change, you know, from financial markets to environment, policy making to engineering. I'm sure that's part of why your insights are so systemic and holistic. But before we dive into that, can you tell us something funny about yourself or something just that, you know, people might not know about you? Yeah, sure. So coming back to your point about the diversity of my experiences, there is this quote from Lords of the Ring, which is, not all those who wander are lost. And I think I've been wandering a lot in my career, but I keep on looking for something and it's something that I still haven't completely found. So I keep yearning for uh, for more. And this diversity is, a, is clearly a source of better understanding of the outside world. I don't know if that's funny, but my grandfather was a baker. My mother grew up in a restaurant. So I love food. I love food because it, it's good. Also because food is about sharing and caring. Oh, I love that. I love that. And all the angles, you know, first of all, the Lord of the Rings quote is quite fun because it's been many years, but, you know, just watching you having done this work for so long, say that gives me hope because I see myself in that as well. So like that, not all who wanders is lost. We'll take that. Maybe we'll couple it with some Lord of the Rings song if possible. And the food element too, really, I think that's so interesting on the sustainable element. It's one of the big topics in sustainable foods as well. And just like knowing how to appreciate what is in front of us is so beautiful. So I've really been, like I mentioned earlier, looking forward to talking to you about the state of sustainable finance. And, you know, I think just for our listeners to get a hint, we want to talk about why we might want to call it, you know, GSE instead of ESG based on a previous conversation that we've had. Just to introduce, you know, this next area of topic with that wealth of experience of yours in sustainable finance, in a way, you know, this is an emergent field in the last five, 10 years. But I understand that there have been earlier versions of it that existed in some form like environmental or social risk. And then there's kind of, on the other hand, been impact investing, which is different. And these things have existed, but they haven't really come together to make sense of how we actually operate as one market. So I'd love to pick your brain on the development of the sustainable finance And before we move into your personal reflections of the industry, I just want to hear more generally for, you know, sustainability and for our listeners who aren't aware, you know, sustainable finance is sometimes also called responsible finance, also in the mix with ESG. Can you tell us more about your different experiences, what you see is happening today in the market, the regulations and the technology? Sure. I think we are living a very exciting time for responsible investment, which is a time of deep transformation. And when responsible investment is stepping out of its infancy and potentially coming to to the adult age, there are some key drivers of this transformation. We can perhaps just focus on two of them. One is the regulatory evolution, and the second one is the tech evolution. So on the regulatory front, regulation is really what is allowing to shift from early adopters and pioneers and people that have strong conviction about responsible investment and 
who are those who have kick-started this market to uh, switch to mainstreaming of responsible investment. And it's because there are some regulatory constraints that investors face that the broader market and the whole sustainable investment supply chain is the whole investment supply chain is now implementing uh, sustainability approaches. So regulation is really a game changer. It's putting new obligations on investors that have to better disclose how they take into account sustainability. And we're coming to an age where greenwashing is going to have more and more uh, legal consequences for investors if they go down that road. So mm -hmm. there is more pressure for integrity and transparency, which is good. But regulation also applies to corporates and is imposing on corporates a better disclosure of their non-financial or sustainability performance. I'll come back to that in a second because this is really drastically transforming the landscape. And the last part of the regulatory evolution is on the service provider. So sustainability scores, sustainability ratings and data providers, which are going to be regulated. And that's also going to bring more transparency and integrity to the market. So sustainability now, because of this regulation and mostly driven by the European Commission, but followed by other regulators in different jurisdictions, it's becoming a systemic component of investment industry. So regulation is playing a key role. I was mentioning that corporates now have to disclose more data about their sustainability performance. That's what the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD, in Europe is all about. But there is also work by the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standard Board, that is going this way. And what does it mean? It means that there's going to be more data available, that the data is going to be more granular, and it's going to be more reliable because it's going to be more binding for the corporates that disclose this data because it's going to be within the annual report and it will have to be checked by a third party, which is going to provide third party assurance. So we're going to move from what has been the landscape so far, which is a landscape of data scarcity. So investors wanting to assess the performance of corporates, they've been lacking data until very recently. And tomorrow, because of regulation, uh, there's going to be an abundance of data and that's going to change completely the market. And because of tech evolution and AI and ability to, to scroll the web, this data is going to be accessible to everyone for free. So we're going to really shift from one world to another and, and this opens great perspective for the market and much more is going to be available. And so the, the quality of the assessment of corporate performance done by investors is going to be a lot better. Oh, that's amazing. Did I hear you say that the data will be provided for free? Until very recently, for example, like a, a couple of years back, if you take listed company, you could get coverage for 5,000 companies throughout the world for ESG data. Under CSRD, which is only applying to Europe, tomorrow, Tomorrow is 18 to 24 months from now. You're going to have 50,000 companies disclosing publicly in a machine-readable format several hundred KPIs on sustainability per company. So this is a major quantitative leap 
in terms of data. And this data is going to be machine readable, reported to the European Commission as well. So yes, available for free. Wow, that's going to be a huge game changer. Just working in the space, understanding that the lack of data is always kind of the biggest barrier. Just to hear that, you know, that provides some optimism. And I was also very happy to hear you say that there's going to be regulations on providers of sustainability services. Is that what you've said there? Exactly. And it's very funny because, I mean, we've been through this so many times. There is a history of corporates fighting against regulation. So car makers, they didn't want the seat belt to be mandatory in cars. And that's the whole story of Ralph Nader lobbying for car safety in the US. And then you, you have also the infamous example of tobacco companies. And now we've got sustainability data provider and score provider that are about to be regulated. They should be happy about it. They should embrace regulation. It means that they've become a systemic part of the system. And as a systemic part of the system, they cannot be unregulated. And they should see regulation as a good thing and a way to improve the quality of what they do. And it's not what is happening. So there's been a consultation by the European Commission and to which most of the sustainability data providers are there have said, oh, we don't need regulation. We can self-regulate. That's going to be good. (laughs) crazy exactly i also believe that it would make them the whole sustainability services market more competitive if there is a standardization of some sort Uh, and i think this is so interesting especially professionals who've been in the space for a while i think that we had one episode that did so well it was so well received reflecting on a guest georgia elliott smith She was a sustainability consultant. She really kind of talked about the problems of corporate sustainability because of the lack of regulations and standardization. And at the end of the day, you're being paid to prove why the company is doing well, right? You're never going to be paid to really diagnose if the company is creating more climate risk or social risk. And so she talked about kind of like the lack of regulations is it kind of makes the providers just in a way, the green washers. I think one of the key components of the transformation that is happening right now as well is that for a long time, sustainable investment has been about explaining your process, what you do, how do you take into account sustainability factor in your investment process, which is good, but it's about telling about your recipe. But telling about the recipe is it's not good enough. You have to figure out if the cake is good or not. And that's the output, that the impact that you do have on society. And that's how we are shifting from ESG integration, which is about processes, to impact investment, which is how my investment strategy has or has not an impact on social and environmental issues. And that's a key challenge ahead of the sustainable investment industry to demonstrate its impact on the world. Depending on the asset classes they invest in, it's more or less obvious or more or less complex to demonstrate that impact. But that's really what everyone is expecting now, because Mm -hmm. if the number of investors, which are PRI signatories, continue to rise, but there is no impact on the outside world, if the greenhouse gas emission carry on to, to increase when they need to decrease, then All of this would be for nothing. So the urgency to focus on impact now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I just want to dig a little bit more in, you know, that aspect of the, how can corporations and companies embrace regulations, you know, or see it as a way to create a market and make our business even more competitive. That's how at least I I might take it one step further there. But just to hone in on that a little bit, I mean, what's the reality, you know, with you working with so many financial players, do professionals and investors see that as a good thing? Or is it just, you know, another compliance or reporting measure, cost base? It's difficult to be objective there. I think that there are wonderful people that have been committed to sustainable investment deeply for many years and have moved really the needle. But if you take take the industry as a whole, I would say that the, the majority of investors are still looking at sustainable investment as a compliance issue or a table stake, something that a box they need to tick for their client, but they are not 100% committed to it. So I think there, there is still a long way to go. And I think mm. that the level of knowledge of the investment committees and people that are uh, who are sitting in the investment committees, the, the level of knowledge of the sustainability issues that they have should be checked. And there is a need for more training and more awareness raising of these people on investment committees. Yeah. So actually, a lot of our listeners are in this space in their companies, knowing that they're tuning in. What should we say to change that way of thinking internally in our companies? Well, sometimes there is some confusion. A lot of the effort and energy is dedicated to measuring risk exposure. Mm-hmm. of companies to sustainability issues. And there are some very sophisticated tools and methodology that are developed to measure that risk exposure. And that's fine. And you can understand why, but sometimes it, it's an overkill. And in comparison, there is too little time dedicated to understanding how the risk is managed within the company. What is the quality and of the sustainability risk management process within the company how the company is thinking about sustainability as a driver of innovation and strategy. And I think that at least as important as measuring the risk exposure. Uh, I like that, like kind of flipping risk on its head a little bit. Usually risk is just kind of mitigated and dealt with. But now are you suggesting, you know, look at risk as something that we can innovate on? Yeah, For example, if you take the TCFD framework, which is about the reporting of the management of climate risk within companies. So yes, there is one pillar, which is about metrics and targets and measuring your greenhouse gas emission or your carbon intensity. And that's fine. But there are three other pillars. And these three other pillars about the strategy and the risk management, they are as important as the metric pillar. But the metric pillar, it's quantitative. It's easy to report and to put in Excel sheet and model. So that's why people are focusing on that. The quality of that risk management process about the governance, how aware are people within the company, in the board of the company is in charge of managing this risk or turning this risk into opportunities. Are the compensation of the board members linked to sustainability performance In my view, this is very important topics that are not necessarily looked after with enough energy and focus. So in general, where do you see the market going? Are you still optimistic about it after all these years? 
Yes, I think I'm still optimistic. I think that things are, are moving forward, but I'm reasonably optimistic because it's not enough to move forward. You have to move forward at the right pace. And if you take greenhouse gas emission, they should decline by 7% a year, which is what was achieved during the 2020 because of COVID, the lockdown and the economic crisis. But that's what we need to achieve every year. And it's not what is happening. So there is still a very long way uh, to go. And I think that a lot of people still only scratching the surface of what needs to be done. And I've not necessarily realize what it would take to shift to sustainable development pathways. I think that when you said that what we need to be like is like the year of 2020 in order to be sort of on track towards our climate goals, that probably should scare people a little bit because nobody wants to go back to that kind of lifestyle. <laughs> at the yeah. same time, that's the amount of work we need to do to keep up our lifestyle, but meet those climate goals. You touched on it earlier when you talked about your journey into sustainability. Obviously, you started, you said derivatives trading as a mm -hmm. financial trader. How did you go from that to the sustainability space? And, you know, what made you double down on that over the years? I, I assume I, it wasn't the large amount of financial rewards. No, no, no. As a teenager, I realized that what made me happy is to be connected with the living with the other persons or with nature. And that's what was making my day. If, if I had one day in the nature, I was happy. If I had one day with people that I liked or, or people who were happy and sharing their joy, that was making my day and still makes my day more than anything else. And then I was a very good student at school. I was the first child of my parents. And in France, back in those days, when you were very good at school, you had to go to the Grandes Ecoles. So I went on that academic track, not because that's what I wanted to do, but because that was what was expected from me. So I graduated from the best business school in France. And then I went to financial markets because it was highly considered. And I needed to prove that I was able to be successful there before I could tell myself, tell others and tell my parents, look, I've done it, I've ticked the box, I've made money, and if that money is worth something, it's not to buy me a sports car or, or a nice flat in Paris. It's going to buy me the ability to do what deep down inside I really want to do. And that's why I stopped in 2001, and I went back to school to environmental engineering, and then spent 10 years in, in sustainable development public policies, where I could reconnect with life, and it was very funny. So I went to this master in environmental engineering. And then after the master, I was taking the train from Paris to visit my parents and looking through the window and I was seeing the landscape. But I was more than seeing the landscape. I was able to understand the landscape. There is a town, but then there is electrical grid. There is a, a water treatment facility, how people live on that territory and develop this intelligence of what is really happening in the real world. And that's a never-ending source of uh, satisfaction for me to understand complexity. And that's what is keeping me so, so motivated with the pleasure to try to contribute uh, to public interest, general interest and public good.
That's beautiful. By the way, the note about the parents, I feel so seen that you felt that way as well. And I think so many of our listeners, I think I had a specific episode about, you know, also just following that parent's expectation more than anything until I was able to find my own and tying this back into like, you know, wandering around in life a little bit. Yeah. So in our previous conversations, I've been in the field as well. And with all your years of experience too, how we felt disillusioned in different chapters of it. And it seems like you've done your own version of pivoting every time or doing something that makes sense for how you make an impact. At least that's how I, I have felt. I started in financial technologies and then I thought, oh, this is silly. I wanted to do more upstream decision-making. Like, why are we trying to bank middle markets and not trying to work with the unbankable? And then kind of moving from there and saying, oh, but then there's a climate side. And then I kept changing to meet the needs of where I found more impact. And back now to innovations and impact for myself. But in the meantime, I have lived so many disillusionments and they were, to be honest, quite difficult to get past. And you wonder if it's worth staying motivated in those short bits of disillusionment. I can totally 100% relate to what you've mentioned. It's very difficult to be involved in sustainable development. Like 15 years ago, I was part of an organization which was gathering head of sustainable development within large corporates in France toward the early days. It was a very nice way to share experience of how this new head of sustainable development in different groups were facing a difficult situation. And there was a common pattern within all these people sharing experience there, which was how hard it was. Because sustainable development, it's an oxymoron. It's constant compromise between different objectives, between the economic objective, the social objective, the environmental objective. So it's always a compromise, a tension, and trying to find the right balance. And it's very uncomfortable. So intrinsically, being in a sustainable development world is something painful. And there are going to be some, some time of excitement when you're successful and you've managed to land a nice project. But there is also disillusion, as you mentioned. So you have to learn to live with that. So that's on, on the day-to-day basis. And then there is the broader question that I mentioned earlier on, which is we're doing a lot of efforts. We're progressing somehow. That's true. But if that progress big enough and happening fast enough, and sometimes can really be very depressed because if you take a step back, you might feel that it's not happening at the right pace and we're still in a very dire situation and there is a need for more radical action. And so I've been wondering myself many times, do, do, do I stay within the system and try to changing from the inside? And, or, or do I step out and move to something more radical to raise awareness about the fact that if we carry on the way we've been trying for the last 10, 20 years, we're never going to reach the goal we want to reach. You know, there is a definition of insanity by Albert Einstein, which is Insanity is about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I think we've been 
trying to improve the situation in terms of sustainability for many years in some ways. And realistically, it's improving, but it's not good enough. So maybe we should think a bit differently. Agree with that. And good quote as well. At some point, it's like, hmm, maybe whatever we're trying here, it's not really doing enough or to be mindful of that insanity. I actually really want to hone in on that because the inside and outside part, you know, like you mentioned inside of the system, working with the type of methods that we have today, the expectations of investors, of government offices and things like that. But they're so incremental and sometimes you just work so hard to win a small, small win. And then you never know if you look at the news in the U.S. and then like a week from then, you know, the, the whole House of Legislative decides to shut it down. And then it's like years of work goes away even. So it can feel so painful. And I like the way you said intrinsically painful. I can feel that inside outside dilemma almost on a daily basis. On that note, I've talked to so many people who are very upset with the Just Stop Oil protest. It's hard for me to endorse anything of that sort, but the truth is they get so much attention, more attention than all the hard work of scientists by making disruptions in daily life. And me kind of in like more of, I understand all the sides a little bit more. (laughs) I think that's one of the key questions that we face. There is a need for radical change. And just let me give you an example, which is something that that I thought about more than 20 years ago, a good way to illustrate how radical the change needs to be. So if we had the opportunity from instantly to give to all people living on the planet the standard of living of an American citizen, it would be immediately a total disaster. And yet the American way of life is still the key model that is promoted through advertising and so many other channels to the whole global population and the the aspiration that uh, everybody is yearning for. So that's how radical we need to change things. Yeah, the gold standard. Oh, the American dream. That's a very good point. That would be radical, though. It's it's interesting because that kind of change, it's not about hard skills. It's not about data from every, you know, corner. And a lot of people think that if we have all the data in the world, then we can solve the problem. But really, it's as simple as, can we change this gold standard ideal that the American dream is pushing? That's actually much harder. Yeah. And the fight against climate change, it's not about technology. I mean, of course, if there are some technology improvements, that's good renewable energy and the ability to provide decarbonized energy to to people throughout the world, that's for the better. I'm not saying the the contrary. But there is enough technology available as of today, and there was already 20 years ago to bring meaningful answers to climate change, because the solution is about more about the kind of life we want to live and the aspiration that we collectively have than anything else. And that's why coming back perhaps to what you mentioned in the introduction of our discussion today, I think that the biggest levy that we have is about the governance rather than technology and how from a governance point of view, we can organize ourselves so that we can bring meaningful answers to the challenges that we face uh, from a social and environmental point of view. 
Yeah, exactly. That actually is a perfect segue into this last part that we prepared, like why we think ESG has got the order wrong. You know, in the West, we've been so focused about just decarbonization, environmental measures, because we think we can measure these things. I've heard this so many times now from our guests coming on that we have the technology even to decarbonize aluminum production. And he said, well, the technology's been there and it is there. We need the political will. We need the consumer demand. Maybe one of the most important things is that the governance aspect is that we need the high offices to really reflect what people want. Because today it's, it's like the best solution we have, but it's actually quite dated. And it's not really reflective of what the people need and want. I totally agree with that. I think there, there was a necessary wake-up call, which was for humankind to understand that humans are part of nature, that they depend on nature, and that there is no business on a dead planet. If we destroy the ecosystem we, we rely upon, then it, it's going to be a catastrophe for us. So this wake-up call was necessary, and we need to care about the environment. But then it doesn't mean that to care about the environment, we should only focus on the E of ESG. Because I think that, first of all, we need to care about people before we can care about the environment. If we yes. do not take care about our kind, it's going to be difficult to ask to care for the environment. It's like when you're in the plane and you've got that message that... If there is an issue, the oxygen mask will fall down and you have to put it first on your mouth before you can take care of the person sitting next to you. So we need to save the people before we, we save the planet, to be able to save the planet. Yes. Uh, and so social as is a prerequisite, solving social issue is a prerequisite to be efficient in solving environment. And then G is even above that because to do that, we need to have ways of making decisions that are much more adequate than the one we have in, in most countries and which do not reflect properly what really people want. Because I think there is a, a much broader shared eagerness to care about people and, and the planet. And if we are organized properly, this can be transformed into a, a much larger power of transformation. Last year, I believe, or 18 months ago in France, there's been an experiment where the French president has asked to gather a group of 150 citizens coming from different parts of France and different professional backgrounds, different gender, and to think about climate. And at the beginning, within these 150, there were people that did not believe into climate change or believe that was very easy to solve the situation. And they went through a process of hearing a number of experts and then making some proposition to fight climate change. And what was very impressive is that at the end of the process, there was a huge alignment between these 150 very different people that have come up with 150 propositions. And mm -hmm. you see that the process was very successful in this way, that from a governance point of view, because they've taken enough time, they've listened to experts, they've understood the complexity, they were able to come with a shared vision and proposition. The only mm -hmm. issue is that the president which had launched this initiative didn't really care about the outcome and didn't make that much about the proposition that these 150 citizens made. But it's a way of showing that if we have proper governance, we can do much better things. Oh, absolutely. I, I love the example. Yeah, because 
for example, I was working on this project, decarbonizing steel in the UK. And one of the big factors that often comes up besides just the how and the cost of it is, you know, you get these massive protests from industrial towns. And it's very hard because these are people who are working class incomes. And to say that for a bunch of people in high government offices and finance sectors, like come up with reasons to move the investment away from an industrial city, it kind of ruins their whole entire lives, the way their livelihood, the way that it's set up today, at least. And a part of it is, like you said, it's modeled after this American dream or however that sounds. And it's like we are fighting ourselves and we're creating problems for ourselves when we don't solve the problem through people first. It seems so obvious now that we're saying it. I like that maybe by just reorganizing it this way a little bit, just to kind of provocatively say, maybe we should call it GSE instead. It, it makes yeah. remember, oh, we need yeah. to focus on people first. Are we including all the stakeholders? Is it diverse enough? Is it inclusive? And I just feel like so stupid for kind of realizing something so simple <laughs> in this way. Yeah, well, maybe sometimes the most obvious is not what comes to mind first, but it's also challenging. And of course, if you think about governance, depending at a different level, it means also transforming the way decisions are made within organization or within a country. And some people who are now in charge might not be very happy to see the situation evolving because they think they might lose. But I think it's for the better. And perhaps one additional point that came to my mind recently because I was very disappointed by the way the situation is evolving in, in France. And then I realized that educated person have been very privileged. And in fact, somehow I've very much outsourced my political responsibility to political parties and have not been involved on a regular basis in political project and contribution. And now I'm very disappointed by the way political parties have handled the situation. But I think somehow I'm responsible for it because it was more comfortable for me to care about my career, my friends, my family, rather mm -hmm. to go and be involved in political discussion at a local or, or national level. If we want things to happen, we need to realize that, yes, it's going to take a little bit of our comfort and we need to dedicate some time to this better governance. We cannot be out of the system. Political discussion and issues, they are complex, they are messy, they require time, they require energy, but you cannot ask at the same time a better governance and stay out of it. So you have to give up a little bit of the time you spend watching Netflix series to get involved into... Um, no! <laughs> I see what you're saying. I think that is just what a gem of a thought. And I must say that I think I'm even guilty of some of that. It's, I spend all my time trying to double down on my strengths, which is in the private sector, on innovation, you know, just doing the basics in politics. But maybe there's a way to take more activities within that so it's actually reflective. It can be uncomfortable, but it, it is. there's so much leverage. Yeah. And the more people get involved, the harder it's going to be to take the wrong decision. I am a strong believer in collective intelligence. And I think that the, since the beginning of the 1970s, there is a, a very big trend of deregulation of markets. And 
also the beginning of the 70s, it's the end of very active area of grassroots movements in the US. And so our trade unions in France, they've lost a lot of participants over the last 30 years. I think there is a need for more citizen involvement at all levels and a need for more public sector and regulation, but in the right way, at the right level, which is to collectively decide where we want to go and then to shape the proper environment from a regulatory point of view and infrastructure that is going to enable to transition to the desired development pathways. That's amazing. Again, what a gem of a thought. Thank you again so much, Rodolph, for coming on to share your experience and these intriguing insights with us. I'm left with a lot of new thoughts on how to sustain my career in impact and maybe even getting more engaged with politics locally and things like that. In the meantime, I'm also contemplating which Netflix series I need to give up. (laughs) And really, thanks again for coming on, Rodolph. It's been a pleasure, Valerie. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And now discussion has also helped me advance in, in my thinking. So thanks a lot. If you've enjoyed our podcast so far, please hit the five stars rating wherever you get your podcast. And more importantly, share it with a friend. It helps us tremendously. And find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Modern Idealist Podcast. Modern Idealist Podcast.